You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... Boris Johnson, the Conservatives are saying, hailing this is a fantastic deal, let's get Brexit done, let's sign this all off by the end of the week. That's not all quite done yet. My guests Peter Goodman and Terry Stiasny will discuss the latest on a developing story about a new deal between Britain and the EU and the day's other news, including could company debt spark the next international financial crisis? That's the warning from the IMF today. And after Donald Trump sends an angry letter to his Turkish counterpart, we ask if the note validates pretty much everything one might imagine about the US president. Plus... Book sales are stabilising, but the buzzing crowds at the Frankfurt Messe have their eyes on acquiring the rights to material that can help them in the booming audiobook market too. The latest opinion from the editorial floor of Monocle magazine. I'm Guy Delaunay. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Peter Goodman, who's global economics correspondent for The New York Times, and the political journalist and author Terry Stiastny. And we begin today's panel with the news that the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has agreed a fresh deal with the European Union. Terry, is this a fresh deal, really, or just uh, warmed-up leftovers? Well, uh, I suppose what the government would say, the British government, is that uh, although... A lot of this deal is essentially the same. They have managed to get the withdrawal agreement reopened and have added uh, 64 pages of caveats and changes. Oh, joy. We have <laughs> had a quick skim read because you know, the, the text is Somebody's there. Somebody's got to. <laughs> I can't you know, say I've read it all in huge detail. The, the changes they have got largely concern Northern Ireland and they largely concern uh, the Northern Ireland backstop and the future of uh, the customs situation in Northern Ireland. And one of the biggest changes, I suppose, is that it would, this proposed deal, give the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont, which isn't sitting at the moment, a vote after four years on whether the customs arrangements should continue as they are. So this is all instead of the backstop. Mm. The problem with this is that uh, the DUP, uh, Mm. US MPs in Northern Ireland, uh, is still not on board with that. So although uh, Boris Johnson, the Conservatives are saying, hailing this is a fantastic deal, let's get Brexit done, let's sign this all off by the end of the week, uh, that's uh, not all quite done yet. Incidentally, it was quite astonishing in his very brief announcement, in his uh, sort of one-liner, he managed to get in all of Dominic Cummings' buzz phrases in, in, I think there were three of them, in one sentence. It was, <laughs> That's get, what it was, Dominic Cummings it was, was after it, all there d- for. Is get it done, take back control, and then he uh, ranted on about uh, the, uh, the spending money on the NHS instead. So it was, it was buzzword, 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 and it was all done in one sentence. He's been a very well-behaved boy, and he's done exactly what he's uh, been told to do. I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea, Peter, bearing in mind that you... Uh, file for a um, you know obviously a great paper, but one that's based on the eastern seaboard of the United States, sure. where there is a large Irish yeah. diaspora. How closely this is being followed uh, over there in in, in those terms? Because we're 
yeah, backstop this customs area. I mean, in terms of Ireland? Mm. I, well, I mean, first of all, we have a global readership. We got four and a half million subscribers around the world. We're not just a New York paper by, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, to the extent to which the Irish diaspora is watching this, I mean, I think there is a sense of great irony that Britain, the former colonial empire mm. that went uh, hopscotching the globe, drawing lines uh, on the ground with uh, very little consideration often uh, for the consequences of the people living in the places it was drawing those lines, stubbed its toe on the line it drew on its original colony. Uh, and it took an awful uh, lot of uh, conversation for the British political uh, powers that be to come around to the reality that the Irish people are, are going to have a say over how this deal gets done. Uh, and what we now have is this elaborate fudge that keeps uh, in legal Sounds terms. tasty. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's a pretty good recipe for fudge if you want one, if mm. you want to get into uh, where the, the European VAT Applied. It contains nuts, I believe. I, I do believe that it does. Uh, and a lot of grain and meat and whiskey <laughs> as, as well. But, you know, essentially we've got this fiction that Northern Ireland is staying in the United Kingdom Customs Union while it's really still going to be part of Europe. Yeah. That's what's happened. And and the DUP, the Democratic uh, Unionist Party, are not going to go with it. Now, bearing in mind that uh, last count I saw was Boris Johnson was running a, a majority of minus 43. So in some ways... The DUP are out of the game because the confidence supply, well, there's plenty of people who don't have confidence in, in Boris Johnson in Parliament now. So in some ways, the DUP were out of the game. Are they brought back into the game by this agreement or are they now a sideshow, do you think, Terry? Uh, I think they're still in the game in terms of numbers, but they are part of what for the government has to be a much bigger calculation of whether they've got the numbers to get this deal through. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the government majority running at minus 43. The people that they have to try to bring on board are so uh, the European research group, the sort of hardline mm. Brexiters, some of whom might agree with this deal, some of whom have come into government since Boris Johnson has been in power, uh, others of whom might say, well, look, if, if the DUP thinks this is a threat to the union and if they have other objections, they may still not vote for a deal. Uh, Boris Johnson has also you know, expelled 21 of his own yeah. MPs from his party, some of whom have then gone over to join the Liberal Democrats. Uh, will any of those think... Okay, this deal is better than no deal. It's better. Not than the ones who joined the Lib Dems. Well, not the ones who joined the Lib Dems. No, they find themselves out of another party <laughs> fairly quickly. Uh, and can they persuade any Labour MPs uh, to cross the fence on this one and to say, well, we're going to vote for a deal because some of our constituents, after all, uh, voted for Brexit? And now, interestingly, we've heard Jeremy Corbyn since this deal has been announced mm. now come out more strongly in favour of a second referendum. And many people on his own benches will be saying, well, how, what took you so long? So if we're doing the arithmetic on this. We start off with minus 43. We throw in the DUP. That takes us to minus 63, doesn't it? Because, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, these things count double. Um, if you're looking at uh, the Labour MPs who wanted some sort of deal, that was about 19 of them, wasn't it? Um, yes, at it's, the most. Yeah. It's, it's not happening. This, this deal isn't going to go through Parliament. I mean, so something weird is going to have to happen for this deal to go through Parliament. Like mm. an enormous check written to the DUP that then somehow persuades the e ERG members, the hardcore Brexiters and the Tory party who've been looking to the DUP for direction to then uh, join in and then some very creative interpretation of what's been agreed to. The, the math doesn't look good. Mm. And then we're into 
what is this really then? And are the European Union... Uh, are, Pardon me for being suspicious about this. I mean, heaven forfend that I should be casting aspersions on, on, on the head of government of the United Kingdom, but this is all presentation. He knows the deal isn't going to go through. We know the deal's not going to go through. This is part of lining up uh, the Dominic Cummings plan of Parliament versus the people and setting the scene for a general election on those terms. Am I right or...? That's one of the theory. I mean, who knows who's right at the moment? Yes, one of the other theories is Boris Johnson goes into this without the agreement of the DUP, knowing that it's unlikely to pass and therefore that he is possibly more likely to be able to get an election. Let's remember he's already failed to do that once uh, because he couldn't get the votes for that either. Uh, the question is, <laughs> would Labour and the others now say, OK, we'll give you this election, we will fight an election... But two, again, big problems with that. Uh, are they going to, is Parliament going to vote for that without uh, any extension, uh, as the Ben Act still requires at the moment until Saturday? Uh, are they going to uh, vote for that without the promise of a second referendum? So, again, you know, that strategy is not as straightforward as some might like it uh, to be. And, and it's, that strategy is now complicated by how Boris Johnson has moved just in this past week. In the, I mean, look, clearly everything that we've been going through these past few weeks is preamble to an election, and everyone at the table is is jockeying for position mm. in terms of how they're going to go into a campaign. But, I mean, Boris Johnson did give up uh, what he said at the outset uh, was a place where he simply could not compromise. I mean, he's crossed what Theresa May said was her red line in, 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 in terms of agreeing to effectively keep uh, the the Republic of Ireland together with Northern Ireland in a de facto non-UK customs union. Are you saying he's breaking his word? I mean, he, he effectively, he's not going to tell us he's broken his word, but I mean, any, within 30 seconds of inspection on this deal, yes, it seems clear he's broken his word. Now, why did he do that? Did he do that because he thinks that we will uh, not notice that? Does he think that uh, he'll be able to sell that as somehow the European unions being the ones who've killed this deal when, you know, for the moment, it looks like the DUP will kill this deal if that's how it goes down. Now, how does that help him going to an election that, you know, go blame the DUP for the deal that I was willing to give while some uh, hardcore Brexiters uh, trust me less than, than ever? Uh, I mean, that that it, it's hard to see how that fulfills a, a, a productive strategy going to an election. Peter Goodman and Terry Stiasny there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Guy. As we've been hearing, a Brexit deal has been agreed between the UK and EU negotiating teams. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said we've got a great new deal that takes back control. The European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker has also ruled out granting a further Brexit extension to the UK. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam has been heckled by opposition lawmakers for a second day. The latest incident happened as she tried to answer questions in Parliament. Opposition members held up placards and shouted at Lam before they were forcibly removed from the chamber by security guards. The former U.S. President Barack Obama is urging Canadians to re-elect the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Mr. Obama said that he was proud to work with Trudeau and described him as a hardworking, effective leader who is not afraid to tackle issues like climate change. And the Monocle Minute takes a closer look at the annual five-day Frankfurt Book Fair. Its 7,500 exhibitors are evidence of a positivity in the print industry that seemed utterly impossible just a few years back. For more on this, head to monocle.com minute.
Those are some of the day's headlines we're following. Now, back to you, Guy. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View here with me, Guy Delaunay, Terry Stiasny and Peter Goodman. Let's move along now to discuss a warning from the International Monetary Fund uh, that companies are taking on too much debt. And from the way the IMF are putting it, uh, it looks like uh, we may be heading for 2008 all over again. Uh, yes, I mean, the IMF are pointing, uh, this is part of their annual report, which they put out looking at the stability of uh, the global economy. And one of the biggest risks, as they see it, is what they call the shadow banking sector. So that is debt that's not held by conventional banks. And obviously, you know, in 2008, we saw a crisis uh, affecting, you know, the conventional, the international financial system. What they are worried about is the level of debt that's being held by people like insurance companies, people like pension funds mm. and assets managers. Uh, And they're saying that this could be, uh, without international and government action, a a big problem for some of the countries. You know, we're we're still seeing the effects of the last global financial crisis, and they're very worried about uh, the level of this debt. And I I, I think they they do have a point. I think the question is what they're actually able to do about it, because Mm. these are the kinds of things that it is quite hard to regulate internationally you know funds want to manage their own money and you know obviously there are interna- you know there are rules about how much uh, the ratios and what they should have but uh, yes, it does seem to be a problem because of particularly the high valuations of some companies whose turnover doesn't seem to reflect uh, the valuations that investors are putting on them. What, what are we talking about here, Peter? This is obviously your thing. So uh... this is my thing. Well, look to Terry's point. The world has not recovered from the global financial crisis, the worst financial crisis Mm. since the Great Depression. And so for that reason, central banks, the people who really control the money around the world, have kept interest rates at or below zero Mm. in many major economies, in the European Union, in Japan. Now, when money is effectively free, and that's what it is when interest rates are zero or negative, it's going to end up in some risky places because you can't simply take your money and put it in a bank uh, or in a non-risky asset like a government savings bond and get any real return. So you go out looking for a greater return. And that, if you manage huge uh, quantities of money like a, a pension fund, an asset manager, Uh, will convince you that it's a good idea to go give your money to Uber, you know, a company that uh, hasn't made a dime in all of its existence and that's uh, on on pace to lose several more billion dollars, you know, this calendar year. It persuades you that it's a good idea to give your money to WeWork, this giant uh, Mm. loss-making cooperative office uh, entity. And, you know, the losses are everywhere. The leverage is enormous. Uh, And we don't know how it will end, but it's probably not going to end well. The question is, does it end uh, quickly or uh, does it lead to several years of of, of stagnation and less uh, vibrant uh, economic growth than we might otherwise have? Is there a word for a, a bellwether that leads you straight over a cliff? (laughs) (laughs) Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a complicated visual metaphor. Yeah, because, I mean, that's what WeWork is, isn't it? Because, I mean, in, in particular, we've got uh, SoftBank, uh, where the, right. the, the the big sort of booster of WeWork, and everybody was looking at the vision fund of SoftBank and saying that, you know, hey, this is the thing, let's follow this guy, he knows what he's doing. And WeWork was meant to be where SoftBank were getting all their money back, and that's not happening, and it's vast amounts of money. I mean, there's an awful lot of people investing huge sums of money on the assumption that somebody else must know how this makes sense. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things with companies, say for instance, companies like WeWork, and we've looked at look at you know big investment funds that are putting money into startup businesses. The trouble is, if those aren't then aren't doing well, it has a knock on effect on all the other smaller companies that they might have invested in. Or for take WeWork, if you wander around London, you see lots of big WeWork properties, you know, offices. If those go, what happens to the property companies, the developers that have built the office space? What happens to other property prices? What happens to, you know, the coffee shops next door that are providing, you know, services for for the people there? You know, there's such a knock-on effect on on other businesses all around. You can't just say this is something abstract in the global economy. This does actually affect the way people work and, you know, what they're actually making money out of in in the real economy. So unicorns don't exist, but they can still be poisonous. (laughs) Well, right. The, the, the problem is that if central banks were to jack up interest rates and mm. make it much more expensive to invest and bring discipline to the market, they'd be putting the brakes on economic growth. And that would make a lot of people very unhappy in places where the real unemployment rate. I mean, we've seen data this week that shows that even though the UK has a record low unemployment rate, if you start counting people who've given up looking for work or who are in temporary jobs when they want a full time job, the, 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 the unemployment rate looks much worse. Lifting interest rates is not going to help any of those people. I want to quote something now to move on, Peter, from from your paper. Uh, Well, it's not exactly from your paper. It's something your paper has published, uh, which is a letter uh, from Donald Trump to his excellently Recep type Erdogan, President of the Republic of Turkey. Uh, Dear Mr. President, let's work out a good deal, exclamation mark. And uh, this is a new one for me. First of all, that uh, heads of state... Uh, communicate with each other via means of, you call them exclamation points, don't you? But, uh, you know, this is what something... What do you call them here? <laughs> exclamation marks. Gotcha. I mean, we're, we're told to, you know, stylistically, they're frowned upon even in school, aren't they, Terry? Uh, yes, they let alone as, uh, you know, a journalist or a head of government or head of state. Um, but this... Uh, <laughs> Clearly you're new to Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Mm, uh, Twitter. Me and Twitter have problems, I think. But uh, I need to set a time limit on it, I think, quite apart from anything else. But, yeah, this is an extraordinarily undiplomatic letter from one head of state to another head of state. And uh, it, it, it makes the tweet that Donald Trump sent out about his, you know, great and unmatched wisdom and, uh, you know, destroying Turkey seem uh, positively restrained, doesn't right. it? It's an extraordinary piece of correspondence. Uh, that's for certain. Uh, the word that we heard uh, coming out of Washington from people who read it immediately was, this is bananas. That was the <laughs> clinical term. A lot of White House reporters spent uh, yesterday hurriedly trying to figure out, is this real? Is this satire that somehow worked its way into the water supply? And they were amazed to learn that, yes, this is real. And it, it, it essentially, it affirms everything that many suspected about the White House and this particular president and his willingness to just lay it out there and engage in reality television uh, kind of effects. It's like the A-team, Mr. T, Mr. Trump, Mr. T, don't be a tough guy, don't be a fool. Uh, Yes, and I think one of the really remarkable things about this, uh, we we obviously get into the political discussions in in Washington in in a minute, but it is the the language of Twitter put into a formal Hmm. letter, and we we don't know whether that's sent, you know, how do you send that these days, sent via email. And um, Erdian has, in response, said um, that that letter has gone straight in the bin. Again, oh, my word. <laughs> who knows if the letter has physically really ever seen He's it. filed it in the circular filing cabinet. Yeah, but, you know, let's remember that Fox got hold of this letter. So, I mean, it's clear that Trump wanted us all to see this letter. Mm. And for him, this is proof that he did not green light the Turkish invasion of Syria. He's proud of this language. But it also shows that there's nobody there standing next to him going, thank you.
thank you, sir, for the letter. Now let me go off and rewrite this yeah. into more conventional diplomatic language, where we say the interests of Turkey's economy might be substantially put at a disadvantage. You know, normally that is how these things are done. Those there's, people are all there's nobody tanks. there who can yeah. say that and take that letter and say, let's do this through the conventional channels. Let's do this in a in a way that isn't going to make the situation worse. Because still in British politics, we have the figure of Sir Humphrey, the the, the fictional aide de camp of uh, the, the the prime minister and uh, yes minister, and then later on the yes prime minister. I mean, who who's being Sir Humphrey in this uh, in this particular scenario? You know, anybody who wanted to play that role in this White House is now pursuing their other opportunities in the private sector. I mean, you you don't last a long time standing over Donald Trump saying, "No, sir, let me tell you how it gets done." Mm, that's a grim thought, isn't it? So, is this the end of diplomacy as we know it? I mean, it, it certainly looks like the end of every kind of convention that we've known uh, in uh, any White House that any of us are old enough to remember. Uh, it, it, it's an extraordinary breach. And uh, it comes, you know, at a time when uh, the president has been unable to shut down the impeachment inquiry. I mean, he's been uh, saying quite openly, I'm not going to have my people participate, even if they're subpoenaed. We're not giving up documents. His personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, said, I'm not handing over documents, uh, even in the event of subpoena. And this is a classic reality television ploy. Mm. You you change the subject. Uh, I I mean, again, this letter was something that Mr. Trump wanted us to see. That's sort of... It's the dead cat. We we like dead cats, don't we, Terry? (laughs) Yes, in terms of distracting attention. But it's... um isn't, I think, I'm sure there must always have been a divergence between how politicians and world leaders speak to each other in private, personally. I mean, we know that, you know, LBJ swore at people, but, you know, that didn't come out in public. LBJ <laughs> also passed the Great Society Acts. And... Well, but you know, people knew how to make that distinction between what you say in private and what you say in public. And now when we've seen this, uh, you know, debate between Trump and Nancy Pelosi, which went really badly, you know, they were essentially arguing like children in a play where Trump is supposed to have said, I hate ISIS more than you do. I mean, that is not a subtle and nuanced discussion of international policy, which is quite worrying. Terry Stiasny and Peter Goodman, thank you. In a moment, we preview the Frankfurt Book Fair. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. You've read Monocle's daily email digest. Now listen to the podcast. The Monocle Minute is now in your inbox and in your ears at 6am London time. That's 7am in Zurich. With all the news, views and clever comment you've come to expect from our unrivaled team of editors, correspondents and bureaus around the world. You can fit a lot into a Monocle Minute. Just ask our editor, Andrew Tuck. We cover everything. We cover news, we cover business, we cover fashion, we cover design. And there are sectors that we know very well. Hospitality, aviation, urbanism. Stay in the loop in just 10 minutes with the stories setting our agenda. The Monocle Minute is our essential daily bulletin. Tune in at 6am London time on Monocle 24 and look out for the podcast. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Guy Delaunay. And finally, on today's programme, we head to Frankfurt, where the city has been swept up by the annual Frankfurt Buchmesse. The annual five-day Frankfurt Book Fair opened to a buoyant reception yesterday. 
some 7,500 exhibitors, plus agents, authors, publishers and press, are aflutter with the kind of excitement that seemed utterly impossible in the print industry just a few years back. Although we here at Monocle have never been fond of the e-reader. Book sales are stabilising, but the buzzing crowds at the Frankfurt Messe have their eyes on acquiring the rights to material that can help them in the booming audiobook market too. Sales of audiobooks in the UK surged 43% last year. Aside from a few words on the bullish market, the opening of the fair saw CEO Jürgen Boos speak with Nobel Prize winning author Olga Tokarczuk about the social role of publishing. Literature, they insist, has the power to unite people and speak up on their behalf when politicians aren't listening. Yet more evidence, then, that the death of the physical book has been greatly exaggerated and that the print industry is finally turning the page. That was Monocle's Paige Reynolds. And that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20 a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Guy Delaunay. Goodbye. Goodbye.